Hello, and welcome to the Modern Romantic Podcast, where we revel in romanticism through art, storytelling, nature, music, poetry, creating, and passionate people doing incredible things. Hello, I am the season for the reason. Uh, I'm Trey. Uh, and as always, I am joined by my fabulous co-host, Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi. I don't have a fancy name today, and I apologize. <laughs> I'll be the season for the season. And I am joined by the season for the season, Emily. <laughs> That's so bad. <laughs> Tonight, we have a very special guest with us. Uh Emily, would you like to in, uh, introduce our lovely guest tonight? I would. Tonight, we have an award-winning filmmaker. Uh, she's based in New York, who is, and she was once called a skillful alchemist at work by Fairy Magazine, also known as Enchanted Living Magazine. Her films have been featured in festivals and screenings around the world, including London, New York, Austin, San Jose, Hong Kong, Sydney. She's aired on PBS, and her Kickstarter was chosen as Project of the Day. Um, her work combines the spontaneity of myth and magic with stark reality to paint vibrant, vibrant portraits of healing and personal truth. I present Lisa Stock. Hi. <laughs> greetings. <laughs> greetings from New York City. <laughs> Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on. I am way up at the top of Manhattan in Washington Heights in what I call Narnia, New York. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And yes. And so when you walk out my apartment building, you see a big cliff. And at the top of that cliff is Fort Tryon Park. And so it's, it's just gorgeous. It's all these trees and cliffs. And New York is solid rock. That's why we can build so tall. But uh, it just it looks like... You go one way and it's cliff and trees and park and you go the other way and it's Broadway. So I kind of have the best of both worlds there. <laughs> and I do a lot of my work inside Fort Tryon Park as well. So do you have a wardrobe there then? You know, if I could fit one in this apartment, I might, but uh, I just have a closet. <laughs> Close enough. You never know. One day we do have the... a lamp post, though. We have those beautiful, you know, old-fashioned yeah. lamp posts. So awesome. those are all throughout the park, and you'll see those in my photography occasionally, and sometimes video. Uh, but yes, we have those. So when it snows, particularly, it really looks like you're transported somewhere else. So um, cool. And the Hudson River is right there as well with the Palisades. So yeah, it's it's a whole different world of New York than most people would imagine. Yeah. Randomly, do they have electricity in this lamppost, or yes. do they still do like? Oh, dang. Okay. Yes, oh, and, and here's the thing: this is like a, a a secret that probably the city doesn't want everybody to know, but filmmakers know. So you can actually unscrew the panel of one of those light lamps and plug your equipment into it while you're on site. So I've actually filmed in Central Park and in and in Fort Tryon. I haven't done this in Fort Tryon, but we did that. Central Park and then you know you can get <laughs> you can recharge and things like that and you just have to screw it back up before the cost. is it like a regular um, outlet in there yeah yeah there's a there's all that it depends and it's like <laughs> that's yeah. exciting I'm gonna yeah. the next time I see one anywhere I'm gonna try it <laughs> um yeah so there's uh we did that once in our and and the thing is when you're when you're filming in Central Park and and we were there we were doing a night shoot uh, this was for my film, The Silent Nick and Nora. And um, you have to 
end at 11 o'clock. And when they, they want you to end, the cops will come around and they will shine a giant light on your, on your production until you start packing up. <laughs> it's sort of like, never mind if you had five seconds left, you are to get out right now wow. and start oh. packing up and, no. and just go. So we knew that, you know, so we were like, okay, okay, we're packing. But at the same time, you're like, thanks for all the light. We can, we can pack up by that. So it's really effective yeah. to end the production though. <laughs> There you go. You know, they're like out 11. <laughs> no exceptions. Yikes. Okay. Um, any particular reason why it's like stuck to 11? I don't, I mean, I guess that's just their general closing hour for the park. Um, mm. I think you've got people still walking in and jogging in the park after 11. I just don't think they want to have people out there with, you know, cars and equipment and, other things like that going on they just want to make sure um, but they're very accommodating actually I, I have filmed in central park numerous times and they're actually really lovely about it no matter the size of your production now i've never done a giant production but my productions they've always been really welcoming and um i was i was filming out there they have these beautiful bridges that are made out of wood and they're they're, they look like branches. And I was using one of those old bridges in a very early film of mine about the Headless Horseman. <laughs> and I just had a friend as a PA and I said, if you could just stop people while we're filming on the bridge, that'd be great. She was like, sure. And I turn around at one point and look up and she stopped two mounted policemen. <laughs> and I was like, you can let the cops come through. But they were like, hey, you know, we're kind of enjoying watching this. <laughs> and, you know, go right ahead. That's great. It's so right, you know. Um, so that was that was nice <laughs> that they didn't care and they they were very accommodating. But uh, <laughs> you never know what you're going to get when you're filming anywhere in New York. But even in um, in Central Park, it's you know we we filmed uh, Brother and Sister that we were talking about a little earlier. That was uh, a short film that I did based on Terry Winling's beautiful poem, which is sort of an answer to the traditional fairy tale. And I don't really ever identify a certain year or time period with my work. A lot of times I'm more indicative of a, a time period. But this was, you know, the princess and the long gown and her, you know, brother in a sort of a, I don't know if it was probably late 1800s, you know, um, uniform. And at some point, this guy came walking by with a giant boombox on his shoulder and just like walked right, wow. right behind us. And I was like, cut, <laughs> go wait for that to go by. You wouldn't <laughs> be able to speed through our set also at one point. <laughs> it's just like, okay. <laughs> and that's that I saw that one and it was you would never have known that you filmed it in a place where someone could walk by with a boombox uh, or ski. People, yeah. Yeah. It looks like you're out in the, <laughs> you know, the black forest somewhere. And yeah. And we had, that was really interesting because the night before we shot, we had a blizzard and we got like 20 inches of snow and our hair and makeup person got snowed in. <laughs> she couldn't get there. So we had her like on the phone telling us what to do with our, uh, lead actress's hair and just to you know but it was perfect and the shots are 
beautiful, you know, but we kind of had to hike with all of our equipment in the snow yeah. out into this. And Central Park is amazing. I mean, you can get deep into the park and not even know you're in the city. And we had these gorgeous shots. And then we were going out the next weekend to film the second part and it got warm and it melted everything and it looks like a whole different season. So that just sort of worked out for us. Uh, Mother Nature kind of shined on us there to uh, give us two different looks for the film. I noticed that it looks like it was winter and fall or fall and, and winter, then, depending. I would say about maybe 10 years ago, we had a huge storm come through the city and it completely destroyed, like it knocked over trees and you can't even get down to that creek anymore. And it also took out the bridge that I was telling you about earlier, uh, but they have since rebuilt the bridge. But that whole area where we shot, it's all fenced off. And one of the, in, in New York, they kind of have this rule that they leave it where it falls unless it is you know, so if a tree falls, they just leave it um, unless it's blocking a path. And then they'll just kind of cut the path and leave the, the trunk on either side. And I like that about the parks. It, it's, they're manicured in areas, but mostly it's wild in that sense. That's great. And so, but it was just too dangerous at that point for people to really get down there now because so many trees had fallen. So I'm, I'm glad that I got to capture it on screen. Do you have, like, I don't know how it works in New York, but um, I used to live near Charlotte, North Carolina, near where Trey lives. And um, they had passed, they had just passed a city ordinance or a law, I don't know what you categorize it as, but it was like, there were a lot of film crews coming into the city to do various projects and they passed a thing where you couldn't film in a public place, specifically public parks without a permit. And the permit was like two grand. And it was, so it was expensive. So people who were just doing like things for fun, if they had any professional looking equipment at all, like even a, like a Nikon camera, you could be fined for not having a permit because they wrote the law to include photography. Hmm. And so all the pro photographers were so mad because they wow. could no yeah. longer do all their little graduation shoots in the park. Oh, but wow. in New York, it, can you just go film yeah. Anywhere well, or do you have to have a permit? yes and yes and no. Um, it, in terms of photography, we have photo shoots going on all the time, and I don't think you need a specific um, permit for photography for still photography. Okay. Um, but for film shoots, it depends on what what you're bringing in. If you're bringing in a car, if you're bringing in lights, mm. if you're going to have some like a huge setup, you've got to have the permit. Or if you want a space exclusive to you. So I shot, um, I think it was January of 2018, we were shooting in Conservatory Garden in Central Park, which is gorgeous. But we wanted the pergola specifically for us. We didn't want people walking through our set. We, we wanted just my actress on that pergola. So I paid to have a permit for them to shut it. And, you know, that's, you know, at that sense, yes, you do. I think, um, you know, the, the Headless Horseman one and also Brother and Sister, I didn't have permits for. But for Silent Nicanora and for Tit that scene for Titania, I did. I think it just depends on the level of equipment and what you're bringing in. And, you know, just so they want to know what you're doing and not, you know, destroying the park. So it, it kind of depends. And But they lay it out for you really easily 
on their website. And again, they're really accommodating. Um, oh, that's good. They're, yeah, they're really easy to get a hold of. And a lot of times they really just ask for the insurance as opposed to paying them because they are city parks. So it's now, again, if it was a huge so-called Hollywood production, it might be different because they have to close, you know, sometimes sections of parks, which, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, maybe on a bridge and let the cops on their horses come by in between takes. So um, I've never paid to use the park. I've just, you know, had to have an insurance policy, which you have to get for a lot of independent, you know, productions anyway. So that's kind of standard. Okay. So, Lisa, one thing I want to ask, because it's very clear from the places that you have, that you have premiered your works, you've been featured on PBS, you've had works across the globe. Mm -hmm. Um, What I'm always interested in is how artists kind of describe their own work. So Mm -hmm. how, in four words, how would you describe your personal brand? Does it have to be a complete sentence or I can just give you four words? <laughs> Whatever you want. <laughs> so I would say magic realism, metaphor, and myth. Mm. Those would be my, my four words for you. I like that. Um, what about your work? Um, what attracts you to those, those sorts of things? For me and... I think, you know, ever since I was small, it's why I've gravitated toward the more magical um, films and TV shows and books out there is because I think that magic realism and metaphor and myths can speak to all of us at once in, in a sense, you know, your personal mythology that, uh, and I use Titania as an example for this a lot that, you know, it's... Um, a story of a woman who's been through a traumatic experience and she has two very deep scars down her back. In the actual project, you won't find out exactly what happened to her. Um, In earlier uh, versions of it, you did, but the more I got into the metaphor magic realism of the story, I left it out because I feel like we've all been through grief. We've all been through hardships. We've all been um through sorrow and if i just display that by two long scars the audience can put their own experience into it rather than me saying oh only this happened to her where the audience could say well that's never happened to me i can't relate to that but if you don't say it and if you just give her those two big long scars and have her walk through the middle of town and try to pretend like nothing is wrong we've all been there you know and i think that metaphor can do that beautifully and in my in my work i encourage people to use their own imaginations i want them to put their own story into my story and i feel like if we use those fantastic and marvelous elements it gives an audience member room to insert themselves instead of telling them what has happened and what they should be feeling from what has happened in the story. So that's why I've always gravitated toward um, mythology and, and toward the magic realism. I think the magic realism, I used to sort of be a little heavier into what I call high fantasy, which I love, but I sort of started pulling back into magic realism and setting things in more recent decades um, 
Because again, I feel like if, you know, we show a contemporary world, our audience will identify with it, but then there's this little magical element and they can say, oh, that's sort of like when this happened to me in my life, or, oh, you know, my grandmother used to tell me this story about that, or, oh, I saw this happen one time. And there's so much magic in everyday life. And I think if I can bring that out in my stories, I can draw far more people in than just, you know, one niche. So that's what I aim to do. And I love that. Um, for me, not, uh, how do I say this? For me in theater, there, there are so many people that when it comes to the way that a story gets told or the way that directions are written plays, it's almost like a purist sort of approach that it has to be performed in that kind of context. And what I love is when, when storytellers, directors, artists, uh, technical directors, etc., take that concept and they somewhat modernize it to, to enhance the story for a different audience. And they allow the story to breathe in a different capacity. Right. Um, the, just because my boyfriend and I are going to go see this next week, um, Hades Town is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> is something that comes to mind. And yeah. they take the, the Orpheus myth and they update it to like this almost like 1930s Great Depression sort of mm -hmm. storytelling. But then woven into that is a lot of those metaphors and magical realism yeah. embedded into that story. Yes. Yes. And and I'm also just, whether it's um, on a larger scale or a smaller scale, or it's just one minute in a film that does that, I think it can just really tie an entire story together. And it can also, when you allow your audience to put themselves into your story, then the emotion also pulls. And, you know, that's what stories are about, right? And just, um, I feel, as I'm sure you do, there are no wrong answers. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes, you know, I do things that are a little unusual and I might have someone say, well, I'm not sure what was going on, but I think it was this and this and this. And I'm like, great, I love that. <laughs> you know? And I just, I want to hear what they're, what they're thinking and what they're saying, because I was always taught and, and I was raised in theater. You know, I uh, started doing children's theater when I was six years old. And one of the things that I was taught was that the minute you stand on stage in front of an audience, you're giving a gift to the audience and it is now theirs you've you know yes you're playing the character that character might be yours or the story maybe you wrote the script but once you give it to an audience it's theirs to do with what they want and i keep that in my head when i'm making a film and i think that's why i try to provoke audiences to really use their imagination because i want them to take that story and go mine <laughs> you know this is what i see this is what i want to do with it and then it lives on. It lives on past the movie theater. It lives on past the stage. It, you know, it'll live on past the computer screen or the TV screen. And it becomes their own. And I think that's probably what we all aim for as storytellers. That is such great. Yeah. <laughs> that is such or at great. Least that's what you hope for. <laughs> right. Oh, but what a great way to see it. You know, it's interesting because... I, you know, I mean, I do photography too, but, and I always am like surprised to hear what someone get when someone gives me feedback on a picture, I can kind of relate because it's not film obviously, but sometimes I have an intention for, and I'm still learning this. What you said is really sound though, that once you give it 
or once you put it out there, it's theirs. Because the feedback I get sometimes is sometimes puzzling or surprising. And I'm like, wow, I wasn't intending that, but I do enjoy hearing that. And Mm -hmm. sometimes the feedback is absolutely not what I expected, but it's still something that I, I mean, it's cool because it's something I didn't consider. So having that other lens, it, their lenses, let it be the audiences after that. That's so cool. Well, the picture tells a thousand words. Is that what Mm -hmm. they say? You know, so right. And that's, um, you know, I think, yeah, those just kind of stick in my head. And I feel like, oh, no, this is, you know, there's no wrong answer. And that's the beauty of art. (laughs) And is that we grow from it. And, you know, it carries us through. And, And there are certain, we were talking about Priscilla Hernandez earlier. And there are some of her songs that have just... I will listen to over and over and over and over. And, you know, they've carried me through different times in my life where they've inspired me for something. And and sometimes the same song will inspire a different thing. And that's also, you know, I hope that people would come back and watch something of mine over and over. And sometimes when you look closely, you'll see different things because I do like to put things in the background as subtext. Um, But that's, you know, or I look at, you know, we all love, certain photographers and and photographs and or paintings and have them hanging in our house and you know look at them over and over and see something different all the time and that's the beauty of it have you noticed that trey like in your performances when you've gotten feedback have you ever gone huh i never thought about it that way or yes um everyone interprets something just differently every single time though there are so many schools of thought when it comes to the way that an actor moves on stage or when they deliver a line um the one in which i've been kind of um been astounded by is the meisner technique which is whenever you're delivering a line on stage you learn all you learn all your lines kind of robotically and when you're in the moment it kind of changes the way in which you think. You don't get yep. attached to something too too difficult or sorry, too much in like the rehearsal process. You kind of let mm-hmm. it be natural every single time. Um, so it's it's always interesting when people give you feedback on things. Um, the one thing I will say is that audiences from my perspective, personal perspective, so the disclaimer out there, get a lot caught up in the visual elements of things Mm -hmm. versus the performance. And it's only when someone really truly reaches into the soul of the person and makes them feel something that they go, oh, and notice that person. Um, Many times they'll just kind of focus on the visual element and not really the artistic expression of that person. Um, there's a time I was performing as what was written as a cisgender woman, a long story, um, but playing a woman, so wig, makeup, everything like that, every single comment that I got was, you look like a woman, you look like a woman, oh my god, like you act in, you know, like it just seems like a real woman, and it was never really about how funny I was or they loved the delivery of this line. And, oh, you know, the way that you delivered this line tonight was really interesting. It was always and forever about the looks. And hmm. that, 
conversation could go on much farther. But the point is, is that it was all about the way that I looked as opposed to my comedic performance in that given part. Right. Um, And being um, with such a heavily theatrical background, I run a lot of my productions like we did in theater. And I um, will rehearse with my actors like we did in theater. And a lot of times in film and TV, you don't have that rehearsal period. But for me, I feel like as a director, I'm doing all my work up front. Once we get to set, now it's their job. It's the actor's job. It's the cinematographer's job. It's the hair and makeup and costume people. It's their time. And I can direct while make sure it all goes, you know, according to plan. But I look at myself as a director of doing all of my heavy lifting prior to getting on set. And one of the best compliments that I receive or can receive is when somebody says, oh my God, your actors have such great chemistry. And a lot of, I work with a lot of the same people um, and I will have them over for dinner and we will rehearse and we'll read through things and we'll answer questions and they just get to know each other really, really well. So that when suddenly they're out, you know, and, and I film outside a lot, which is, a little bit alarming sometimes Um, when we did the dream scene for Titania, which is it's on my Vimeo and it's this huge sweeping, sweeping hill with this house. I took my two actors, Victoria Hay and Keith Chandler out to Central Park and had them out on a hill, you know, and said, I just kind of want you to get used to this space because once we're out there, I don't want it to be distracting. You know, mm. there are gonna be different sounds and we're not on a stage and we don't have cameras in your face. It's, it's gonna be a much, you know, you're gonna have birds and you're gonna have wind and you're gonna have the water. And I think it really paid off. And that, but at the same time, I feel like I very want, to, want my actors to get deep into their own characters as they see fit. Um, I feel like I'm a director, not a dictator. So if I, if somebody has an idea, I like my creatives to be creative and to be creative on set. And if they want to try something, if they have an idea, I want to hear it. If it doesn't fit, I'll let them know. But otherwise I feel like I would really lose out on a moment of genius. And it, I, so I kind of let them breathe a little bit on, on set in that sense. So in the middle, you know, they can, they can go ahead and just, um, uh, like you said, they just can grasp the moment. And even when I get it in the camera, I will often ask the cinematographer or the hair and makeup person or my actor, is there something else you want to try? Let's go ahead and do it. Again, I might lose out on a moment of genius if I didn't give them the opportunity to say, oh, I want to try it this way, or oh, I think I can you know, do this differently. And it just makes it that much more enjoyable also in the edit room, (laughs) just to see those very real moments come forward uh, through the camera. And it's those moments that are like, that's that's it. Um, I was on a photo shoot with Emily once and um, we've talked about it a couple of times, but it's, um, it's something that I always go back to. There was a photo shoot that we had where um, it was like a Lord of the Rings kind of inspired Mm -hmm. Um, Elvin um, shooting at a I can never remember the the name of this place Lansford Canal but thank you um, you know the one I'm thinking of yeah it's my favorite so, place <laughs> so um, 
we she had asked the the two models to go and stand in the trees because the light was filtering through um they happen to be standing near these trees and then all we hear is oh my god get over here um and so we're all like <laughs> running over there and it was it was just stunning the mm. chemistry between the models the the light filtering through it was capturing on film um or through the camera incredibly and even raw the images were just chef's kiss yeah. just absolutely gorgeous and so it's it's those moments in particular that you just have to go ah oh, oh. like you know yes. when it happens too <laughs> We um, ran into a similar situation in the Titania dream scene. So we were out at this beautiful, it's the Marshall Fields estate out at Comset State Park on Long Island. And um, that I got a permit for, <laughs> in case you were wondering. Um, and we had like all day, we could see this hawk, like flying back and forth, flying back and forth. And we get to this moment in the scene that's probably the most pivotal moment in the entire scene. And Titania, she has to like pull away from Nicholas at, and sort of look at him and, and it's all said silently. And just when that happened, the hawk flew right behind them. And in the raw footage, you can hear me and my cinematographer go, oh! <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then I was like, I'm using that take no matter what. And somebody who watched it said, did you have a bird handler? And I was like, no, it just, it was just, and at the same time we were down on the field in front of the hill and we had this super wide shot of titania on the field and we had clouds and sun that day and just as we were taking it the sun and the clouds just rolled down that hill just perfectly so it's sun and then it's shade and then it's sun and then it's shade and i thought you know i i couldn't have ordered that so Sometimes that serendipity is just beautiful. Yes, for sure. Um, one thing, I was actually looking at your Instagram and um, it was uh, <clears throat> a post you had made recently. And um, <laughs> if this gets too political, please no, just no. say so. Um, <laughs> I think I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you had gotten some, in our talk about feedback, yeah. you had gotten some feedback that lighting was one of the most like important things that you needed yes. to focus on in film. Right. And what was a series of like six or seven images of incredible shots, Thank you. by the way. Um, it's do you ever get feedback that makes you kind of scratch your head and how do you deal with that kind of feedback um in the moment and what do you do with it well that particular incident um was that comment came from somebody who i don't know if they just don't know my work or they hadn't really paid attention to it and you know there are, um, I'm going to try to be very diplomatic as I say this, um, people who like to talk about what they know and sometimes assume that other people don't know that and they don't know your work. And sometimes, uh, most of the time, I can let that roll off my back, but then occasionally I'm having a day and I'm sitting there thinking, 
thank you for letting me know that lighting is really important to photography. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> Captain Obvious. Awesome. Thank you. And and then I go and post something like that on, you know, that says, I hope I'm doing it right. <laughs> it's just like, hey. Um, but the the ones I think that um, I, I had a a project I did a while ago and I decided to open it a certain way with a particular image and sounds and I do things that are unusual and it was a lot of well why why did you do that and I thought why not <laughs> you know it's just it kind of draws you into the story and and I feel like I I want people to answer those questions on their own I don't want to necessarily handhold somebody through what I do so sometimes I do get maybe a little too abstract and when somebody wants to tell me to bring it back or explain something a little bit better I can get a little fussy about that but then I you know realize, well, they're probably right, you know, not everyone can read my mind, and I need to give a little more information. Um, but, you know, at, I, I think at my age, and, you know, after doing this for 30 years, at this point, I kind of feel like, you go ahead and say what you want. And I know it's, uh, you know, I'm, you find your niche, and you find um, the people who, I always say, go where, go where you're welcome, you know, go where they're saying yes. And, you know, I, my films are sometimes it like film festivals don't know what to do with them. I've been in a lot of film festivals. Um, but I'm also starting to notice recently that there are a lot more niche film festivals coming in. And I just um, finished a short film called The Cave. And what I've done, it's taking the story of the allegory of the cave by Plato. And instead of the folks staring at a wall with shadows and that's the world they think is the truth it it comes into present-day new york city with people looking out their windows at their neighbors and thinking that's the truth and it also involves baking pie and um sing a song of sixpence and and what i've done is you're looking at a visual of these people well i'm actually in it and i'm looking out the window at a neighbor who's baking these pies and then there's another neighbor watching me watching that person bake pies. And it's um, the sound that overlays is the sound from a bakery. So the sound is contradictory to the picture. You're not hearing me in my apartment. You're not hearing me lift the window. You're not hearing the construction workers that I'm seeing. You're hearing the sounds in the bakery. So it's contradictory to the picture, but it's complementary to the story. And I just wanted that clash of sounds to sort of, it splits your brain a little bit when you're watching it, but it all comes together into the same point. And I knew that, you know, once I started getting that out there, I kind of had to explain what I was doing. And it's not, I'm not trying to say that people wouldn't get it. I think I was just worried that, you know, because of those few people who go, I don't get it <laughs> because they don't want to try, you know? And I'm just like, just watch it. Just don't think about it. Just watch it. And then, you know, the, the ones I know that have seen it so far, they've really enjoyed it. And it's, um, I think if anything, if, if I get a snarky comment, it just makes me push myself even harder or it makes me do something even weirder <laughs> to, to sort of say, <laughs> in your face um 
but yeah, I mean, at, at this point, I feel like I, I'm doing my own thing. I like that you go, um, you either say push yourself harder or go weirder with right, it. Right, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, so one of the comments I get a lot um, living in New York City was someone who, um, and again, I'll be, I'll be diplomatic saying this, but I think people have a very specific idea of what life is like in New York City. And for people who haven't been here, they, you know, they just have this very specific idea. And one of the things we hear about a lot, and it is true, is how small New York City apartments are. And there's um, that great, um, uh, the movie with um, Jane Fonda, they move into that little teeny tiny apartment and there's some really like, you know, the bed fills up the whole bedroom and you turn around and you're bumping into each other. And so on my Patreon, I do these things called Friday Night Theater and talk about going weirder. That is one what I do with Friday night theater is I give myself restrictions. I give myself parameters. So it is one minute or thereabouts, one shot, one story. And I see what I can do within those frames. And so I had one where there's a woman and she's at her kitchen window and she's opening up the window and she's tossing something out the window, you know, and then she comes back and she's tossing something out the window and she comes back and you're hearing the dialogue from the movie and, and you about how small the apartment is. And then she walks away and suddenly this giant pigeon comes into view. So it's like, you know, how small is it? It's so small. The pigeons are bigger than the apartments, you know, but I was just like kind of answering to all the, you know, the comments I get about living in a closet and, you know, from people who have never been here and they don't know. And I think, you know, here you go. <laughs> it's, so sometimes I like to get a little, a uh, little touch of humor there as I'm trying to answer somebody's snarky comment. Um, and just put it, put it back on them. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're laughing. <laughs> I did another one for the Friday Night Theater where there was a um, a woman. It, there's a door up in the sky, and it's and I just kind of wondered, you know, the gods that and talk about mythology. The the Greek gods in particular are so human. You know, they love and they're jealous and they get angry and they have all these human problems. They don't really act like gods like you would think, right? And so I was thinking about that one night and I thought, well, you know, maybe there's a goddess up there who like does the laundry. And so she's up here, she's washing the stars. I call her the celestial laundress. And she, there's just a one minute video of her doing the, you know, like wringing out the stars and hanging them up to dry. And then she rings out the moon and throws it up into the sky. And the whole time you're hearing this advertisement from a 1950s soap commercial. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of like drives home, you know, that this goddess is being very domestic in her, you know, doing her everyday kind of duties. And uh, that's another way that I, I kind of right now I'm really uh, jazzed on seeing, pushing myself in terms of sound and like different things I can do with sound. And uh, I've been having some fun with that. I like that. It's <laughs> clever, too. And I'm all about cleverness um well so what is one of the biggest hurdles you felt you had to overcome that really paid off in the end well um and this is and and um for anyone who has followed my story for a while they'll know um 
that Titania is my heart. <laughs> it is my biggest project. It is in progress. And we've had a tremendous amount of hurdles, but they've also paid off and made the story stronger. Um, you know, early on, I wrote the story and the role of Titania for one of my best friends who also happened to be my neighbor. She and her husband owned the brownstone I lived in at the time. And about um, two years into it, and, and I say that because, you know, this was a big project. And, and so we were writing the script and then I wrote it into three scripts because trilogies were all the rage at the time. And it was very much high fantasy and then it changed and then we cast it and then we started, you know, having, um, I think it was 2016, where we started having other cast members come in, and then it started changing. And then in 2017, she died very tragically. And at that point, my whole world, just the bottom fell out. And I didn't know at that point, what I was going to do. And her, she, she died from a very rare brain disease. And while when we knew that she wasn't going to come out of it, um, her aunt was in our house at one point and she stopped me. And when I was coming in and she opened the door and she said, I thought you'd want to have this. And she hadn't, and my friend's name was Stephanie and she handed me her script and she said, Lisa, we've all talked about it and you know, she wouldn't want you to stop. You know she'd be really upset. She loved this story. She loved that character, and you know she'd be really upset if you stopped. And so I took her script upstairs, and I could see all of her notes written in the margins and and everything that she had thought about the character. Of course, we had already been working on it for over a year, and. Um, at that point, I decided I would continue on. And her husband also said the same thing to me. And probably recasting her role was professionally the hardest thing I've ever had to do. However, I was blessed with having Victoria Hay walk in the audition room that day. And it, you know, I knew I couldn't replace Stephanie but I didn't know what I was looking for. I just, we had a, we were actually going to FairyCon and we were going to be presenting the um, film and starting to introduce it to people. And her aunt had said to me at that time, FairyCon was in Philadelphia. And she said, Stephanie was born in Philadelphia. She's like, I want you to go and I want you to present it and I want you to carry on. And so I knew I had this, you know, I couldn't present it without having a Titania. And I saw, I don't know, maybe 40 women that day. And Victoria, I think, honestly, was the last person to walk in. And when she walked into the room, I started seeing the film in my head. I started seeing her in scenes. And the, I think even later on that night, I emailed her and I invited her over for dinner to talk about the role because I wanted to tell her what had happened. In a sense, I wanted to give her an out in case it was too much. I totally understand. And she just came in and she embraced it with such grace and with such understanding and compassion. And ever since then, the what she has done with Titania, she's made it her role. She's made it Stephanie's role. She's made it my role. She's made it everyone's. Like she's very much um, taken Titania and turned her into that 
that woman of metaphor that I think everyone can identify with in, in every scene that we've already shot with her and what we will do going forward. I just feel like this is, you know, it's, it's become so much more, you know, life imitating art, imitating life, imitating art. And, and having Victoria as, you know, my ride or die with this, you know, project, I just, I'm like, this is great. I couldn't have asked for, you know, a better um, lead actress, but she's also been a creative partner and she's, you know, and just to let you know that a lot of the cast members that came on in 2016 when Stephanie was still alive are still with the project. And that is something else that, um, or excuse me, not 2016, 2006, oh. 2007. She passed away in 2007. And I come back, you know, every so often and we do a little bit more or it changes. And, and one of the biggest things that I did in recent years was, as I was talking about a little earlier, is I let go of what I would consider the high fantasy and I moved it into the mid 20th century. So it's around 1960 and it's much more magic, magic realism. But I feel that doing that with this story, people focus a lot better on Titania's journey and less on the surrounding elements, less on the environment and more on her. Victoria, every single incarnation I've done of that character, as well as all the others, my actors have just beautifully gone through, you know, they're, um, Every time I call and I say, hey, I've got something else. And they're like, yes, I cannot tell you how much that means to me that they have stayed with this and stayed with those characters. And, and in all those years, we've really become like a family. And we've seen, you know, we were all in New York and now we all live all over. Some of us are still here. Victoria's based out of London. Keith is in California. Nikita's in California. And they still just all come back together and say, yes, you know, what's going on? You know, as a storyteller, I mean, I just couldn't ask for more. I couldn't ask for a better group to go through this story. Um, and then just to tell your listeners, it's... Um, a story of overcoming adversity. So there's the woman with the scars on her back and she doesn't quite remember what's happened to her. So it's about going through the steps of grief to really get a grasp on it and come out, as I say, walk out of the dark wood and into the sunlight again. You know, we've all we've all done that and now we've done that together and we've had you know births and weddings and divorces and you know all kinds of things that we've shared together but you know there was a time um maybe i would say eight or nine years ago i was um a featured director at a screening of um stardust and um, I actually, Neil has been very kind to me, Neil Gaiman, and I've adapted a couple of his things um, with his blessing. And I, you know, at the end of it, we were talking about Stardust and I also love Charles Vess's um, illustrations and those um, inspired my photo series of Yvain, um, which is on my, you can get to via my website. We were talking about Stardust and we were talking about the, the film. And then the person who was interviewing me said, you know, could I talk a little bit about Titania? And I remember that there was a woman in the audience and she raised her hand and she asked me a question after I had been talking about Titania for a while. I don't quite remember the question, but she seemed very, very like she was leaning forward on her chair and she was really listening. And I thought, you know, I love that. Sometimes you find that one person, right? Yeah. <laughs> in the audience. And, 
And, you know, we went about the discussion and the event wrapped up and I went out into the lobby and I was standing there with a friend and that woman came up to me and she was crying. And she told me that she had been through a violent attack and hearing my story of Titania encouraged her to go home and start writing about it. I cried the whole way home in the car, you know, and I thought, this is why I'm doing it. This is why I'm doing that story. This is why I keep going with it. Because if there's one person who says, this helped me, or I get it, I understand it, I'm going to, you know, move on, I'm going to write about it, or I'm going to process it, then that story has done has done its job. That is incredible. I... <laughs> I think about her all the time. I really do. When I hit a when I hit a wall, you know, and I think, oh, I, I just I I think about her, and I think, oh, just keep going, you know, just keep going. And um, yeah, we recently so the most recent um, segment of Titania was a short film called Prodigal's Road, and it's sort of a um, the short runs parallel to the larger project. And that also, it's, it sort of encapsulates as well everything that um, Titania goes through in, in this short. And, you know, I got a lot of my actors back together. It was amazing. And I still, though, I like anything that I do every time I have another piece of it, I think about her. And I also think about my cast. My cast has kept me going with it for so long. And... Um, you know, I said in a in a recent interview, I said it's like we're singing the same song to each other over and over. It's just every time we get together, we add another stanza to it. We just keep building on this story. And um, I, I'm just so thankful. I mean, I can never say enough about that, that career. I love all my actors, whether they're part of it. But I usually anybody I like and I want to work with, I'm like, well, come be in Titania. <laughs> you know, <laughs> can be, can be, can be in in the family um but that's yes great. that's uh, that last sentiment of like oh if i like somebody we we want to like bring them on mm -hmm. um we have this running uh through line through most of our podcasts um that we've stuck it started out as kind of like a joke idea and it's somewhat now become into if we don't do this we are going to be like laughed at um we <laughs> everybody who's <laughs> ever listened <laughs> um we um so what we our big hope is to find a castle somewhere and just overtake it for like a day a weekend do something and just do nothing but photo shoots films art and just make that like just an overtake of a castle i was gonna say we shot in a castle for the titania prequel it's it's not a working castle. It's just like the shell of a castle. But if you're looking for a castle, there's a great one on a on a hilltop called Sleeping Giant Mountain in Connecticut. And when you're driving into the mountain, it looks like a giant sleeping on his side. And uh, so there's a castle for you right there, an American. And it's where castle. again? It's in Connecticut. It's called Sleeping Giant State Park. Okay. And they have a, a castle at the top of it. Actually, um, tomorrow I'm going to be um, posting, or if you get onto, uh, aside from my own website, Titania Film, whether mm -hmm. you're on Instagram or um, Twitter, uh, you'll see a lot of the Titania things on there as well. And I'm about to post something tomorrow that shows you that castle. Okay. Um, just a, for sort of a flashback. Um, 
But uh, yes, I love that idea, actually. Why not <laughs> get everyone together? Yeah. Along the way, we've invited can. everybody who's been on the podcast. So, of course, you are invited, too. Thank you. I would love it. And because uh, uh, she makes horse armor. And wow. So we were going to have someone had horses. Do we remember who? Well, I imagine um, if it's in Connecticut, we'd have to find somebody nearby. Yeah, but somebody had offered <laughs> horses, I thought. So, Lisa, you talked um, you talked a bit about having having an actress and having a team of people that you just want to work with consistently, or yeah. you would love working with them. Um, yeah. My question to you is: Is there an actor, or is there a director, or is there somebody creatively mm -hmm. that you would want to be on your film? That if you asked them and they said yes, you would be like, "Oh my god! Oh 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 my god!" Oh my god. Oh my god. Angelica Houston. Oh, oh, yeah. right? Yes. <laughs> Why Curtis? Well, she just like, what could I not write for her? I mean, I just feel like she's so versatile and so such a presence, but also very giving as an actress. Everything she's in, you know, particularly the Wes Anderson stuff, who I love. Um, I just, I'm just, I, I look at her and think I've got to write something for her one day. I've got to write something for her one day. Um, I do have a role in mind for Jamie Lee Curtis. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> Maybe one day. But there are a lot. It's just, I think Angelica Houston is just the first one that comes to mind that I think, oh, I could write a thousand things for her and just keep her busy for a long time. Um, she's pretty amazing. Yeah. For me, for me, she was my mortician. Oh, yeah. And she was also my um stepmother in ever after yeah yeah yes yes right and look at how different i mean it's like come on <laughs> like what could you not you know what could you not write for her and i feel like that about a lot of the actors i work with you know i've been working with um uh there's another actress that i started working with in film school and we were both working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in college. And she was an actress, and I knew that. And I just asked her one day to be in my, um, my thesis film, which was uh, inspired by Maya Darren's Meshes in the Afternoon, because I also love surrealism, and Maya, Maya is, is also my heart. Um, and I'm still, you know, she's been in things of mine throughout. And... It's, her name is Diana De La Cruz. She's based in Los Angeles now. But, you know, you call and you go, oh, I wrote something for you, <laughs> you know? And I do that. Like, once somebody comes into my fold, and first of all, no divas, I get to the point where I actually write that in my casting call, no divas, because we film outside, we film in the cold. And when we did the scene in January uh, for Titania, and we were on that pergola, Victoria, who plays Titania, she had to be in a cocktail dress. And this is January in New York City. And what happens is in that scene, Titania shifts the seasons. And so it goes from like summer to winter, but we were filming in winter. It was a high of like 27 or 28 degrees that day. And she was in a cocktail dress. So of course, in between takes, we're putting her in her parka and we're rubbing her hands. And we had those warmers and we're rubbing her legs. And then we'd take it off and she would just be shivering. And I would call action and she would just, I don't know how she did it because I was cold she would just calm and she would go through the whole, all of her scenes, all of her lines as many times as we needed. Oh. And as soon as I hit cut, we were like, <laughs> put a coat back on, <laughs> rub it in. So it's, you know, no divas, no complaining, no, you know, none of that. And I, 
so once I find somebody and I tell them that, I'm like, oh, you're mine. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to call you up and go this. I'm sending you a script. You know, <laughs> we're going to do this now. And, and fortunately, I'm going to knock on wood. They've all come back. They've all, you know, and that means the world to me. But um, Diane and I, um, Trey, I wrote a play called Surrendering, which was about two American women in Barcelona during the Spanish Civil War. And we did that as a play here in the city. We were a Samuel French finalist. And um, afterward, we thought, well, let's make this into a movie. So it's sort of like your friend finding the castle. We were like, well, we're going to get on a plane and go to Barcelona. We got a camera guy to come with us. And Diana had a friend that lived in Germany that did sound. So he flew in to Barcelona from Germany with his microphone and, and his gear. And... We walked into the uh, film office in Barcelona when we landed and we asked them if we could have a permit to film. And they said, oh, sure. It would take about seven days. And we said, well, we're only going to be here seven days. <laughs> and they said, well, as long as you're not stopping traffic or doing something, we're like, no, it's the two of us and the two of them. We're, we're fine. But the hotel we were in wasn't exactly what we were looking for. It was too modern. So we walked around Barcelona the first day we were there until we found a better hotel. And then we walked in and we got a room and we got the balcony, which is what we wanted, overlooking one of those narrow streets that when you peer around, there was the big placa. And it looked like it was the 19, you know, um, 40s. And it was just, it was perfect. You know, it just kind of all fell in. And that was, that was a lot of fun. You know, there's something to be said for that, you know, get on a plane with a camera and go kind of uh, filmmaking. But one of the things I remember from, from that shoot and Barcelona is, it's much smaller than New York City. <laughs> and we were walking around after we would shoot, we'd go walk around and see the city sometimes during the day, depending on where we were shooting. And every single day we saw this man, we saw the same man head to toe in white. He had a white suit, he had a white hat, he had white shoes, white shirt, wow. everything. And I got to calling him the angel of Barcelona because I don't care where we were, here he came, here he was. <laughs> and he'd like, we turn a corner, there he was. We'd walk this way, here he comes. And we kept running into him all the time. And I thought that was so, I don't know, there was something very magical, real about that. Um, mm. And one of the, the fun, uh, we, we shot a big chunk of it in Barcelona, but then we shot with other cast members here in New York City. And Stephanie and her husband, they owned a, a brownstone that I lived in and they had a backyard. So we made the backyard look sort of like a Spanish patio, you know, and we had a whole bunch of cast members and it was sort of maybe a you know, a place where people got together for drinks and, you know, play the piano or whatever and and, and yell about politics. So there is a, a very, and it's right during the Spanish Civil War, so it, the conversation got really heated, you know, at one point between these two characters. And, and one of the, he was so good. He just delivered this um, scene so well. And when our director called Cut, there were people in the apartments around us watching and they all started clapping. And I was like, oh, suddenly it turns into theater, you know, but that's, that's very much New York City, you know, is that what's going on out your window? And there are people just like this, like watching everything we were doing from their windows. And that was, that was really fun as well. Um, 
I'd like to, though, if I may, um, just give a shout out to the director of that film, Julie Powell, who recently passed away. Julie wrote the book, Julie and Julia, about Julia Child. And she was in, yes, and she was a, um, I knew her, I worked with her husband at the Museum of Natural History for years, and she directed the stage production of Surrendering, and then she went on to direct the film. I just want to tip my hat to her tonight and wherever wherever you are, Julie. <laughs> we made a good story together, so I'm glad I had that experience with her. Oh, yeah. yeah. But um, that's also one of those, just to switch gears a little bit, when we were filming on the balcony, we didn't have a lot of equipment because we were, <laughs> I actually carried one of those old fashioned typewriters with me from New York to Barcelona, like one of those that comes oh. in a case and it's got the big keys. Yeah. And when I was going through customs, I think it was in Amsterdam, actually, they opened it up and he says, oh, Jessica Fletcher. And I, you know, <laughs> and let me carry it through. But um, we were filming out on the balcony a lot. And I just remember this was so funny. We didn't have a reflector and we really needed so we got the pizza box from lunch. Yeah. And, and at one point, if you look closely enough, you kind of see me go like this. Just to, and then suddenly it lights it up. <laughs> because when you're, you know, 25 and you're doing guerrilla filmmaking, that's what you do. And it, and it was, it's fun. You know, it's just fun. You're, you're getting out there. You're telling your story and you're, you're having a really good time. So it's, um, <laughs> yeah, I like getting creative in more ways than one on a on a set. That's great. The, the only story that I have about customs, um, just really random. Um, so in Amsterdam, um, I think I told the story last week was uh, about, or the other week was about how I bought uh, from a, a Dutch bakery, just a bunch of like buns. And I like to be frugal with my money. And but what why? I wound up... <laughs> I was going to say, you have no books why? on your shelves behind there. <laughs> He's in the middle of moving. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm in the middle of selling my house. So all of my books and things are at my okay. boyfriend's place. Um... <laughs> I was not expecting that. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, anyway, so, buns. Um, we were talking about buns. Buns. Um, so I had taken these... <laughs> buttons and I put them in my backpack and I had put them in there like two days before I was leaving because I was planning on making a bunch of sandwiches and I left them in my bag all the way up until I decided to travel I get all the way through Amer to American Customs and <laughs> randomly they my bag went off and I was like what is in there? I don't remember putting anything in there. And it was right about the time that he opened up the bag, pulled out the loaf of like buns that was in my bag, and he they were all smushed like all together. And he just goes, Do You still want these? And I was like, No, no. break them apart. Just... I, I, I'm good. Some bread pudding. Smushed back to dough. That was it. Well, see those are those are those are good stories at least you didn't go <laughs> jessica fletcher <laughs> jessica fletcher 
true. That was hilarious. So I used to work for, as I said, I'm going to go, I used to work for an archaeologist at the Museum of Natural History. And we dug on an island off the coast of Georgia um, called St. Catherine's Island. And they had um, wild boars on the island that the Spanish had brought, I guess, as a food source. But we were, um, and we would have, you know, uh, some interns and scientists that would come with us. And there was a biologist with us one day and she found a, like a skeleton of one of the boars and she wanted to bring it back with her. It was just like perfect, you know, the vultures had cleaned it for her and everything. And so she went and got it and cleaned it and packed it up and she was gonna really clean it when she got, but it was just a perfect skeleton that in nature had, you know, disintegrated. Um, uh, just gone down to the skeleton. So she took it with her and she put it in, she checked it into baggage. And when you, we were on the island, it was like you were on the island. It wasn't, you had to get on a boat and go out into the intercoastal waterway for 30 minutes. And you didn't come off the island uh, for like two weeks, you know, like we bring all of our groceries and, and all of that with us, unless you got hurt, then they'd airlift you off. But, you know, other than that, we were just like on this island with wild boars. They had, uh, the Wildlife Conservation Society had a, a huge um, sort of repopulation program going on. They had lemurs and they had kudus and Jackson oh. hartebeests and zebras and they had macats and they had giant radial turtles. And, and so you're kind of, you know, out in the middle of the wilderness, right? And But we did have cabins that we stayed in and um, the lemurs are adorable. But coming back into New York City, you're, you kind of had to have a minute to shift. And so we all flew back one one morning and you know how Americans are. The minute you hit the tarmac, everybody's up. They're getting the luggage out, you know. And we were just sitting there and we pull into the gate and we're all just like, we're going to let everybody else get off. And you can hear the door of the plane open underneath, you know, and you can see the little belt go up and the baggage start to come out. And suddenly one of the baggage guys screamed. He was like, ah! And I was like, Marion, that's your pig. <laughs> I was like, he's got And oh, no. sure enough, it had opened. I was like, you didn't pack it well enough. But they did let her take it. <laughs> they did let her take it. And so she'd have her, her biological uh, uh, little specimen there. But... <laughs> We knew, like we knew the minute and everybody <laughs> ran over to like that side of the plane and we we're just all sitting there like this going, no, <laughs> no. And they've got a story to tell now too. <laughs> well, and I think also working for an archaeologist uh, for so long influences a lot of what I do too, as well as magic realism, because there are definitely some things that I learned about that you would never... Uh, even know existed, you know, and and so it's a very, I mean, it's it's hard science, but it was a very magical place in a lot of ways, and so I think uh, that has often influenced what I do as well, trying to keep life interesting. Yeah, alive or dead, mm -hmm. who is someone that you would love to sit down and have afternoon tea with? Well, Maya Darren, as I said before, if I could just sit down and talk to her, she had a very interesting life, um, not only a filmmaker, but a dancer. She also was an anthropologist, too, and did a lot mm. of documentary work down in Haiti. And I would definitely just want to sit and let her or just watch her on set, just watch her create. Honestly, I think that... Um, 
And I didn't get the chance, but Ursula Le Guin, who is a storyteller I absolutely adore. Um, and there have been documentaries, you know, but just to sit in, in front of her or listen to her talk or ask a lot of questions about storytelling and imagination. I think she was also quite an advocate for, you know, using your imagination and, and uh, valuing imagination. We all were born with one. So um, I think that we can uh, continue to use it throughout life. And uh, probably those two are at the top of my list. So, well, I would also put in there Jean Cocteau. Um, I would love to just get into his brain a little bit, as well as uh, Georges Méliès, who was the first, as far as I'm concerned, the first fantasy filmmaker making mm. fantasy films when they were silent films, and he was doing uh, incredible special effects in 1902, you know. Um, wow. And I think without him, uh, you know, a lot of us would be further behind than we are now. Um, so, yes, I think those three or four, definitely. That would be quite a tea party. Yes, it would. That would, that would be fun. <laughs> that would be super fun. So a few years ago, I did a short film called Losing Time, and it was yeah. um, because I happened to be a Tim Burton fan, and this was actually the L.A. Film Festival and Danny Elfman were doing a challenge where Danny Elfman was letting filmmakers use a piece of his music for their films. And um, just we were talking about funny stories. Losing Time is on my Vimeo page. And we, um, we, it was great. We had, we out of over 200 entries, we came in number 15. So I was very happy with that. But there's a scene where um, Another one of my very dear friends, Joanne, who is a magnificent photographer and cinematographer, was the DP for this particular short. And we were, and Joanne and I have known each other since film school. So we've known each other since we were 17 or 18 years old. And we can, we hardly have to talk to each other. We just kind of know instinctively what we want. And we were filming a scene where we needed to pull into a parking spot. And I wanted it from the driver's point of view. And I was the driver and she was, so we kept driving around in circles in the, in the parking lot into the spot and backing up and driving around. But because it was my point of view coming in, because you had to see another character right in front of the car, we're driving around and Joanna's almost in my lap with the camera. She's sitting on the, on the side, like, kind of doing this with the camera as we're, we're driving around. And I looked at her and I said, you know, when we're 80, we're still going to be doing this kind of stuff. <laughs> I was like, 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 we're just never going to stop this. But that's like, I don't know, that I those kind of moments are the ones that just define um, how I work. And I, I think sometimes when I think of Melies, you know, I mean, he just was doing, he was just trying stuff, you know, and, and he was a magician and he was, you know, he built toys and he, he was a really fascinating person, but, you know, he kind of, he built it and said, let's try it. Let's see if this works. And if it doesn't, I'm going to make it work. I'm going to figure out how it works. And a lot of times I feel like I do that as well, particularly when I'm editing, um, I still make maps, you know, I still make, um, particularly even for Prodigal's Road, which uh, is more along the traditional lines of, of uh, filmmaking, I still overlaid clouds, you know, in the sky, I still put things, you know, 
into the frame that I create in Photoshop and then I pull them over and stick them in. And, and Photoshop and Premiere Pro actually talk to each other, which is great. And I did a lot of mats for the cave, which uh, the um, trailer is up on Vimeo now. It's it's on the, it's uh, hopefully going on the festival circuit. So it, the whole film isn't up, but um, it's, I did a lot of mat work for that film. And when I, you know, you make a change in, Photoshop it and you save it, it just automatically goes back into Premiere Pro. Oh, nice. So you can go back and forth. Yeah. And I do that a lot. I like things to sort of look like storybooks or picture books. And um, so that's uh, you know, one of the one of the concepts that I use a lot, which may be very old school in a way, but I really enjoy how it looks. I like things to almost look like paintings at time. And I have this book, this uh, Melies book that I sit sometimes at night in bed and I just flip through it. And I look at all the set pieces that he created and I look at the colors that he used. And, um, you know, I've been walking around, uh, my parents will tell you since I was about four years old, telling people I, I was gonna be a movie director because of The Wizard of Oz. And when I was little, dating myself here a little bit, it used to come on once a year at Thanksgiving. And I would just, I was just mesmerized. And, you know, my dad telling me, oh, that's a movie. They make those in Hollywood. And I thought, okay, <laughs> you know, yes. And it, but I still look at that film and how colorful it was and how much of it is filmed in the forest and, you know, through the window and through the doors and all of that, the colors, the windows, the doors, the forest are still so prevalent in everything that I do that I, you know, I'm like, well, no wonder, you know, I've been walking around since then. And, and fortunately, you know, I had a um, parents that just encouraged it. I think they were like, okay, you know, she's been telling us since she was four, she's going to do this. And so, you know, they sent me to film school and, you know, they've just encouraged it and have, um, you know, been, uh, they're on my Patreon. I mean, they really support it. That's it is great. Yeah. And I think that's really important, um, you know, that we just encourage one another to continue to use our imaginations. And, and the things that we were drawn to when we were small are still meaningful, you know, and um, still have a purpose. And it's not, you know, childish at all. It might be childlike in some ways, but it's certainly not childish. And I think, you know, the stories that I tell um, very much adult themes. I don't think kids would really get a kick out of what I do, um, but uh, because the themes are certainly more mature, maybe something they haven't been through yet, but um, we don't escape, you know, this life without, without going through those. So I see myself sort of, you know, still pulling from my childhood, but then interpreting it for my current, my current life. I, I really like that you bring up that the what you are talking about is still inspired by what you did as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, so often I feel like, and maybe other, other people have voiced this concern before, but um, I feel like we lose a lot of that imagination or when we want to go back to those things that really inspired us as kids, it's, yep. it was kind of frowned upon. And yeah. now in more modern society, it's like, no, d dig into that, give yeah. into that a little bit more. Um, one of the things that I found early on in, in my days were like the Ghibli films. Mm. Um, yes. And I, I cannot get through 
um, through some of those films without crying, honestly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, his themes, he has war, you know, and I mean, his themes are, you know, they're not light. Oh, yeah. Um, the one the one that I think that I love the most, and just because it's so pure in its storytelling, is Kiki's Delivery Service. Yes, yeah. And, oh my God, how, just how could you not love that story? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so it's it it's so interesting to have those themes come back, um, yeah. and then we reinvigorate them into something new. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's I, it uh, last summer. So I live close to Fort Tryon Park, and they show movies in the park. And last summer they were showing The Wizard of Oz. So I go out there. First of all, if you haven't watched The Wizard of Oz in a room full of adults please do because that's a whole different experience. <laughs> and it's like, you suddenly realize, oh, the adult jokes, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, the jokes about people not having brains and you know, stuff like that. It's just, it's a whole new experience. Now the kids were completely wrapped, but the adults were having all kinds of uh, fun. But Margaret Hamilton's grandson, who must be about my age, lives in my neighborhood and so they had him come and introduce the film and talk about her and when i was little the witch just like terrified me you know i had all the wizard of oz dolls except the witch because she was so now i have a mug with the witch on it because i love her but he was telling us that you know and, and i thought there's such a great story about imagination when he was watching the film when he the first time he saw it he said he was about five or six years old and his dad thought, okay, you can sit down and watch this. And he knew his grandmother from Elmira Galt in the beginning. He was like, well, that's her. But he didn't recognize her as the witch. And so his dad didn't say anything. He just let him watch it. And when it was done, he said to him, well, what did you think about the movie? And he said, I don't like that woman with the green face. <laughs> and so, you know, not knowing that was his grandmother. And so... His dad said, well, you know, that woman with the green face is coming to see you tomorrow. And he was just like, <gasps> and he, he was so nervous and so scared, like all night. And he said, like, the next day when the buzzer rang in, you know, in their apartment, he ran and hid behind the couch and then in walked his grandmother. And he was like, what? And then she explained to him, you know, what well, I played that role, too. And, you know, that's not, you know, me. I was playing a part. And I just thought that was such a great story about, you know, the, the imagination of a child that he wouldn't even see his own grandmother, you know, for the witch. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was fun. And, and he said that she used to hang every Halloween. She would hang. She, they let her keep the dress. And oh. she would hang it on the front door. And the little kids, of course, wanted to come knock on her door and get treats. But, you know, it was just, that was a great, great story. Um, yeah, I want to go knock on the door just so I can see the dress. I, right? Exactly. Yeah. He probably has it. But, um, yeah, I think I, I agree. I mean, even the stories, you know, that our parents read to us or the, the books. I mean, I think I still have... Um, <laughs> this is a stupid story, but for some reason, I get the Dick and Jane books, and in oh, yeah. <laughs> I used to write my name in the book, and for some reason, I would write Lisa A plus stock. <laughs> I don't know why I was giving myself She's, an A plus. You're manifesting your own grade. <laughs> oh, <I guess> so. <laughs> 
I made the mistake of telling one of my current coworkers that story. So now every time he emails me or every time he said he emails Lisa A plus doc, Lisa A plus That's doc. awesome. That's <laughs> hilarious. Uh, so- Emily, now we need to, on the title card for this episode, we need to change it from Lisa Stock to Lisa A-plus Stock. You know, I I'm, was just typing it now. Since I'm not this there. season for the reason, I can, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my name now. I've Congrats. Name now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You also get an A-plus for this episode. Oh, yay. Yay. I'm so excited. <laughs> Uh, are the, <laughs> in that light of like inspiration things um are there um are there any projects that you have upcoming or any um any projects that you hope will happen soon yeah i mean um i'm very excited that this week i am traveling to pennsylvania and talking about childhood i have a photographic print in a show at um the mccarl Coverlit Gallery, which is inside the Fred Rogers Institute. So all of those years of watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and now to have a, a print in a gallery there, I'm really excited. It's um, it was uh, you can see it on my uh, social media or my Flickr page. It was a an image that was inspired by Magritte's Son of Man, which is the painting with the bowler hat and the apple in front of the man's face. But I did this during COVID and it's a woman in a red bowler hat with a mask on. But it had a lot of similar themes in that, you know, being the seen and unseen and kind of being frustrated in a world living behind masks for so long. And uh, so the, this show is actually about masking in America, particularly, you know, how it affected us culturally and, and artistically during the pandemic. But I think it's also going to get into the history of masks. Um, so I'm very excited about that. It opens this week and it runs through February for anybody who is near Pittsburgh or Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Um, I also have, well, Titania will be continuing um, as well, but I have another short film that I shot this summer, um, also in the park. Um, it's a sort of an experimental take on Cinderella. And uh, yes, so, but it takes place again, like I said, I don't usually say a year, but it has hints of like the seventies. And I had uh, three actresses who are also playing glass ashes and midnight and they so the photographs the cinderella is a photographer and then the photographs somewhat come to life at different times during the story it's about overcoming your naysayers and we've all had those in our lives so cinderella's stepsisters would you know were horrible to her and saying awful things to her so it's it's coming above putting yourself above all of that at at some point in your life and moving on from it and uh, then I'm also going to be working on um, a couple of other things. One is a new uh, photo series called No Good Deed, which is a series of very interesting mug shots. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> and um, then I have a, another, um, what I, it's an interesting project. It'll be video and photo. And uh, that's going to be about, um, sort of taking a stand, but it has a lot of magic realism elements to it as well. So I've got a few things in the works um, and the cave hopefully will will be around on the festival circuit. We should start finding out uh, very soon. 
about festivals that we make it into. So that's what's coming down the down the pipe. Exciting stuff. Thank you. Can't wait to see. Um, I, I'm almost scared to ask, what does your day-to-day planner look like with all of yeah, these things upcoming? <laughs> because I also have a full-time day job. <laughs> that's it's very colorful i have to yeah i have multiple lists and i also color code everything so i know exactly what i'm working on when and (laughs) what uh, what has to get done at what time at what date and uh just staying ultra organized is uh how i make that all happen and i love it Mm. that would be the only way yeah. Yes. Color coding is my friend. Um, so if you oh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you. So if you <laughs> would like to donate to uh, Lisa's fund, you can go check out her Patreon page. Yes. Thank um, you. You can also donate if you drink coffee. You can also donate in the form of like um, Starbucks rewards cards and gift cards. Yes, the Patreon folks get to see everything first. And uh, for a dollar a month, they get all the um, finished products. So they can see all the Friday night theaters and they see all of you know the finished films and videos and photographs. And then the tiers go up from there. But um, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, that's when we were making it happen. Excellent. Um, so speaking of making it happen, yeah. How if there was somebody who like you who wanted to get mm-hmm. into filmmaking or do mm-hmm. something like what you're doing, mm-hmm. would what advice would you give them? Know your craft. Um, I know not everyone goes to film school, but I, I just. I was so thankful. I was so grateful that I I was able to go. But I think, you know, even still, I am still reading about my craft. I'm still discovering new pieces by filmmakers I've loved for years. I'm just, you know, reading a lot of the um, theoretical and critical essays about film because film has its own language. And when you really learn to use that language, that's when... I think, you know, you'll find who you are as a filmmaker. And so that goes, you know, one step further from saying, do your own thing. You know, it's learn your craft and learn which filmmakers, you know, you like and why. Why do they inspire you? And just dig deep into yourself to do it. Fortunately for filmmakers, we live in an era where you can go make a film. I mean, Orange was shot, that was nominated for an Oscar a few years ago, and it was shot on, um, it was shot on a cell phone. You know, it's, we can do that. It's just about learning, learning the language of editing, learning the language of storytelling through imagery and through editing, through dialogue, through performances, and how that all works together seamlessly. Hmm. And that, you know, when I see someone like, again, like I was saying with Wes Anderson, um, you know, he's found his language. Um, Tim Burton has found his language. Um, Alfred Hitchcock found his language. And when I shot Prodigal's Road, um, I said to my DP, I said, think Antonioni, but magical, (laughs) you know, and it's all those big sweeping landscapes and how you put people into your landscape. So a lot of painters 
influenced me, like Wyeth and Dory, who, you know, will put people into large sweeping landscapes. And I do that a lot. And it's, you know, I think I would just really encourage people to find their own voice through the film language. And there are a lot of amazing resources out there to do that. Um, and it, it'll find its way. You know, I said I, I sometimes, you know, with some of the stuff I do is maybe a little hard to place. And there are more niche film festivals out there, which is great. But then you're going to meet more people who are thinking like you and you can inspire each other. However, at the same time, I find that there is a much wider audience for things that might seem niche. And that's one of the good things about having the Internet and social media is that maybe somebody who wouldn't go to a film festival or, you know, wouldn't normally look at something like that would see it. And we had the good fortune of having Prodigal's Road accepted into um, Cinequest in 2020. And that's an Oscar qualifying film festival. So, you know, we were like, hey, we're, you know, <laughs> we're up there with uh, the big wigs. And it, and it was nice. It was just nice to, you know, have that opportunity. So find find your crowd, find your language and work on it and just keep putting it out there. And don't be afraid to reach out to people and say, you know, hey, I like what you do. You know, do you want to collaborate? I've done that a lot and have had um, really, you know, it's uh, have had great experiences through that. You know, just go, just say yes. <laughs> you know, try, try, push your own boundaries. You'll know if it's working or not just go ahead and push it. And, you know, it's fine to fail. I think sometimes, you know, the, the director will come out in their first feature and it'll be a huge hit and then their second one tanks and then it, and for some reason they're unforgiven. And I think, well, why? You know, we have to be able to try new things and let directors succeed and fail and try and do something different and they're going to figure it out. And, you know, that's why there are auteurs out there that people love whatever it is they're doing. They run to the theater to see it because, you know, they're relating to it. So really, I would just encourage somebody, you know, to just find their language, try something new, shoot it on whatever you have. And, you know, editing software you can purchase and you can YouTube and Google and teach yourself how to do it. Um, and ask people, you know, um, there's certainly no shortage. I don't think, you know, it's, you know, having top gear, there's certainly something to be said for that. But at the same time, if you're a storyteller, it's, you know, go tell your story and don't let budget, which is a huge <laughs> obstacle, don't let that stop you, you know, just go tell your story and do good work and treat people really well who are working with you, um, they'll come back. That's, yes. that's a big thing. And if somebody doesn't treat you well, you don't have to work with them again. In fact, you can also write them out of your movie <laughs> if you're not happy with what's going on. There's just no room for it. You know, we're all creatives, we're all storytellers. So, you know, have respect for one another and, you know, go, go have fun and go, you know, make something meaningful or profound, whatever it is you want to do, you'll find your family and, um, you know, treat them well, treat yourself well, and it'll show. Well said. That's Lisa A plus stock, ladies and gentlemen. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> 
for sure though um, i love that you said to treat <clears throat> others well i believe that is the pinnacle of importance yeah and you need to have a sense of humor you need to definitely have a sense of humor um we were so if i can tell another of course here at the end a girl of filmmaking story Okay, in, you know, sometimes I go into a studio and we ADR in a studio and then sometimes I just go in my bathroom where I've got towels and the shower curtain to buffer it. And I had one of my actor over from the cave because he needed to record some voiceover for the picture. And uh, we went into my bathroom to do it because my neighbor upstairs is a concert pianist which most of the time is really lovely because they're really good. So I get like a free show. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they also start at sometimes the most inopportune times. So I was like, well, let's go into the bathroom and shut the door. And I neglected to say, but don't shut it all the way <laughs> because you can't, it's a New York City apartment, right? So at the time you couldn't get out of the bathroom from the inside. And it was good, like, you know, the first time I discovered that, like my boyfriend was here, so he could get me out of it. And ever since then, I would just shut it all the way. But we went in there and my actor shut it. And that was it, we were locked in. And I was like, oh my God, okay. And so I called my boyfriend and I said, I think you're gonna have to come up here and get us out of the bathroom. And you know, it's like, if, if you're, it, you have to laugh. You have to hire somebody that's just going to laugh when they get locked in your bathroom with you. <laughs> you know, if they're not that person, they're not the person who's going to do all the other stuff either, you know? And so we were both laughing and, and actually um, Jerry, that's his name. He had his credit card on him and my boyfriend was like talking him into how to like Jimmy the oh, tour yeah. and break into it. We got out. And then I called my and said, okay, you got to come up and fix this. But, <laughs> you know, it's that's exactly how I feel. I'm like, come on, it's just <laughs> we're gonna have a really good laugh about that, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd be joining ago. us from your bathroom right now. <laughs> I would be. Oh, I was ready to like break the handle. I was like, you're, <laughs> we're getting out of here. <laughs> so it seems like every apartment I've lived in, I've had an issue with the bathroom door for some oh, reason. Oh no. <laughs> city apartment if you didn't have something like that right right so, <laughs> treat people well and they'll laugh when when you know they're sitting in your lap and you're getting a shot in the car or <laughs> you lock yourself in the bathroom <laughs> or you know it's 27 degrees and you're asking them to do a scene in a cocktail dress it's like you know you you put some some gratefulness toward them and and they'll do that <laughs> you know <laughs> it's and if you can't if you're not then you know i probably won't work with you again because <laughs> if you can't laugh what are right. you going to do <laughs> right people I, need to be willing so. to get locked in a bathroom with you yeah there you go <laughs> there you go I'll see uh, you know what i'll i'll save the joke for later um lisa it is you have such incredible um uh, incredible vision you are so incredibly well versed in not only what you are speaking to but also in your work so everything that you're saying i feel like shows up in your work and it's Thank very you. evident from that Thank um, you very much. this has been an absolute pleasure yes um, i agree i've really enjoyed it um, um we want to make sure that 
all of your social medias are covered, especially for our audio listeners. Yes. Um, what are some of the best platforms to to contact you with? And what are is there anything else that you would like to share? Yeah, well, I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Lisa Stock Film, also Titania Film. My website is lisastockfilm.com. My Patreon is patreon.com slash lisastock. And those are really the best places to, to reach me. Um, and I think I've probably said, said, it, <laughs> said it all. I can look at my little notes here, but I think, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I went through and I, you guys were great to talk with and I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Um, yes. Thank you so much. And, and I love what you do. I mean, I, I, right from the beginning, I, you know, got your first issue and it's absolutely gorgeous. And I've been following you, Emily, and your photography for a while. So thank um, you. yeah, I look forward to what you guys are doing next. And I love the, the podcast and, you know, thank you for having me on. Really of course. It. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. That's really nice that you uh, follow me as well. I appreciate thanks. that. No, I was, it was on Twitter and I was like, wait, I've been following her for a long time over oh, here. Yeah. Yes. I had, yeah, because I have, I, it's complicated and I, I'm, I totally am. It's under Emily it's... Kramer art. That's the one I've yes. been following. Oh, okay, and I was good. Like, oh, she does modern romance. It's awesome. I, yeah. Okay. Cause I hardly ever post to Twitter cause I don't love it. And yeah, I have, it's... I have that account, but like, it's, I almost ignore it. Well, it's social media yeah. is it's such a love hate relationship, and you know it has its good things and its downside. <laughs> and you know, and I, I can't you, keep uh, up with all of them. There are too many. There are. So yeah, there are. But um, I'm mostly on Instagram. I think. If yeah, I followed you there. on Instagram too. Oh good. So thank you. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, I was going to say it's nice to meet you in person, sort of. Yeah, Maybe sort we'll, of, right. we'll actually yeah. meet in person at some point. That would be awesome. Let me know if you ever get to the city and uh, or if you find a castle and, you know, yeah. decide to move there and have an artist <laughs> working retreat. We're just going to buy a castle or build one. There you go. We need that Ooh. Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. Hey, look. If you want to go out, um, I think you can still get tickets for the lottery. It's up to one point right. nine billion dollars. We at this could point. build a couple of castles, absolutely, and fly mm. everyone over there. <laughs> I think that would be a worthy use of the money. There you go. <laughs> Lisa, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, um, but uh, <laughs> pretend that you have just received an Oscar uh, for one of your mm. films. Um, yes. For uh, please give us a speech. A speech to who I would thank if I yeah. was. Oh, I love that. this. Well, this I, I would say first and foremost, my parents, who, like I said, when I told them at four years old, I was going to be a movie director, they just said, OK, <laughs> you go for it. Um, I would also thank all of those um, teachers that I had that encouraged me to use my imagination and encouraged me in general. Um, I would thank all of my cast members, past and present, who have come on this crazy journey with me 
And, you know, the people, you know, that supported the Kickstarters and the Indiegogos and the Patreon, because not most of us, you know, are not born wealthy and we don't um, have the connections to uh, money or in my case, I don't necessarily want bean counters putting their fingers in my paint, as they say. And I want to keep my vision and my voice and, um, you know, be able to make my story. And it's, it's those folks, all of those folks that I've just mentioned that make it possible for me to do what I do. And so um, go out, use your imagination, go out, follow your dreams. There's a restaurant up here, um, one of my favorites, Angelica's Uptown. And above the door, they have a sign that says, don't quit your daydream. Oh, I like that. So that's what I would tell everyone. Oh. Don't don't quit your daydream. You it can it can fit in. Yeah. And thank you. I'm gonna put that sign on my wall. I like that. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Thank you. Love that speech. Good night, guys. Congratulations you. on your faux Oscar. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.